All right, if you want to go ahead and uh, make your way back to your seats. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, just looking forward to diving into God's word with you for a little while this morning. Before we do that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time. Oh God, you are our ever-present help. You are full of patience towards us and steadfast love. God, we pray that you'd help us today. By your spirit, help us to be attentive. Help us to lean in to your word. And by so doing, God, we pray that you would help us to see the magnificence of your grace and your faithfulness throughout time, even now, and into the future. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I love movies and TV shows, books that have and tell really good stories. And one of the types of stories that I really enjoy are origin stories. An origin story is an account or a backstory that's given for a particular character or a group of people that tell you how that character became either, you know, a good guy or a bad guy or why the things are happening in their life are happening in their life. Its purpose is to add to the overall interest and complexity to the narrative that's being told. But origin stories aren't just for fictional characters. Everyone has an origin story. I mean, that's why I think biographies are so popular. We, we want to learn about people that we know about, but learn a little bit more, the particulars of that person's life, how he or she came to be who that person is and who we know them to be today. And for the past couple of months, we've been in a sermon series in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 called Origins. And in some respects, at a high level, it's our origin story. It tells us how the world came to be. It tells us how God intended for it to function and operate. And it tells us why things are the way they are now. But within this larger origin narrative, we get the small beginnings of another story. The story of one who will come. One we also desperately need, the savior of the world. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through the storyline of the Bible to see how the origin story that begins here in Genesis chapter 3 leads to our salvation. And my hope is, is that we'll all be encouraged. Encouraged at the richness of grace and God's faithfulness to rescue and to redeem. And out of that, that we'd be encouraged to have faith in the only one who can bring that redemption in your life and my life and the lives of those around us. So whether you call yourself a Christian or just checking out who Jesus is, I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm grateful that God's brought you to be here and that we can take this journey through the Bible together this morning because I think God has something for all of us in it. So let's jump into Genesis chapter 3 and may God bless the preaching of his word. I want to start by reading kind of the bookend texts of the sermon. We're going to be in a lot of different places in scripture this morning. Some will read and some I'll summarize, but it kind of starts and ends with these two different verses that we're going to look at today. The first is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is speaking, and he's speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then... 
First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul is writing. And he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. When we jump into Genesis 3.15, we jump into the middle of a catastrophe. I preached on Genesis 3 a few weeks ago. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I'd encourage you to go back and and take time to to sit and soak in the whole chapter of chapter 3. But here's what's going on at this point in time. When God speaks verse 15 to the serpent, here's what's taking place. God has created the world out of nothing. He's called everything into existence by the power of his word. And the pinnacle of God's creation is the creation of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, made in his image. And they were meant to live under his kindly rule, with him being the king and them following him. They were called to reflect and represent God in the world. That's what it means for them to bear his image. But temptation came. A serpent came into the garden, Satan in disguise. And he starts to invoke doubt in the hearts of this man and this woman, asking that question, did God actually say? They doubt God's goodness, they doubt doubt God's character, and they're taken in by this lie that they don't actually need God. They can be independent from him. They don't need him. They can actually be their own God, the captain of their own ship. The consequences of their rebellion were catastrophic. It affected not only them, but every single person who would ever live and all of creation. Every aspect of brokenness, of hardship, of disorder and difficulty that any of us experience in our own lives, our own personal lives that we see in the world around us, all of it is a result of and tied back to this one act of rebellion and disobedience. When they rejected God's authority and said, I'm good on my own. What happened at that point in time is shalom was shattered. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace, but it means more than just the absence of conflict. It's the idea of wholeness and harmony. And in that moment when they rebelled against God, that shalom was shattered and broken. But instead of immediately destroying them, God comes for them. He comes for them to confront them in their sin but he does so in an act of patience and grace. See, because God is holy and righteous, their rebellion, their sin must be dealt with. God can't just sweep it under the rug because guess what? It's just sitting under the rug. It has to be dealt with. It has to be removed from them in order for them to have a relationship with God. And so God tells them in the rest of Genesis 3 what life is going to look like for them if they're given over to their sin. What life's going to look like for them when they want to be their own God? Life is going to be hard, and they'll no longer be able to commune with God. Instead, they'll be spiritually dead, a consequence that every human being born into this world experiences. The result of their rebellion is both an inability and an unwillingness for any of us to come to God at all. We keep trying to do it on our own. But in the worst possible moment of all time, God shows mercy and he promises grace. See, in speaking to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against God, to doubt God and his character and nature, God pronounces a consequence for that serpent, which is a promise for humanity. 
That's what we see happening in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, or another word there, Hebrew word there is seed, between your offspring and your seed and her offspring, her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what exactly is going on here? God's telling the satanic serpent that his days are numbered. Because one day another image bearer will come. And you will try to to attack him. Just like Satan continues to do with every image bearer of God. You'll try to attack him by striking his heel. But guess what? He's going to step on your head. Some translations say crush your head. And he's communicating to Adam and Eve something in the midst of all this. He's communicating something to all of humanity. And that is that things will not always be this way. Satan and sin will not always rule the day, but one will come to end them both. This short message is packed full of hope and grace in the midst of utter despair. God could have destroyed them in an instance. He could have obliterated them from the face of the earth, but instead he gives them a promise. Many scholars and theologians call this the proto-evangelium, which means the first gospel. The first gospel. It's the first glimmer of good news for them and for us. And what we see in this one verse is the beginning of a promise. A promise that will come through a person. It says her seed talks about he, a person who will do battle against their enemy and ours. So how does this promise of this person play out? Well, that's what I want to show us today. That's what I want us to see in God's word today. God says a restorer of some kind will come through the line of Adam, but who is he? And when and how will he come? See, Adam and Eve in this moment, they don't have a full picture of what God's communicating here. They don't have a full idea of what this actually meant or what it actually was going to look like. And even through scripture, not God's people don't always have a full view of what God's up to as he's working this out in life and in time. But we do have a full picture because we have the whole Bible. God's word to us. And Mark talked about this last week. This is an amazing gift to us that God gives us his word. And in his word, we learn more about who he is. And in his word and through his word, we learn about who we are in light of who he is. And so we can take all of the Bible together and see how it ties all together in an amazing story of how God is faithful. How he's faithful. And how he continues to not only make promises of redemption like he does here in Genesis 3.15, but also brings them all to fruition. Something only he can do. So let's take a little journey through the Bible and see how it all unfolds. There are a lot of different ways that we could look at the storyline of the Bible. A lot of good ways, a lot of right ways to look at the storyline of the Bible. But today, jumping off of Genesis 3.15, I want to focus on the prominence of the family line. The seed of Eve working its way through different people in different capacities in carrying out God's promises. When we jump into Genesis chapter 4... We see that soon after Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and removed from God's presence, they start a family. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Maybe one of them will be the one who brings the end to sin and suffering. Maybe this is the seed, the first child that's born will restore shalom for all of humanity. No. We don't know how much time passes, but these two brothers, as they've grown up, have conflict with one another. 
Cain is jealous of Abel and his offering before God. And so instead of dealing with that in any kind of right way of dealing with conflict, he kills his brother, murders him. But all isn't lost because Eve has another son named Seth. And maybe it'll be Seth or at least someone who comes through Seth. But if you look at Genesis chapter 5, we see nothing really seems to be happening after Seth is born. In fact, what we get in Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy. We're talking about a family line. But in the midst of this genealogy, look at chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. I just, as I was studying this week and noticed this this week, and it was just like, wow, this is amazing to see what God is up to. Verse 28 says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying... Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, from the painful toil of our hands. Maybe it's Noah. Maybe Noah's the seed, the promised one that's going to come. Maybe he's the one that will bring relief and restoration and rest for God's people. There's something in this that looks a little bit like what God said to Adam and Eve. But we look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we see that the state of the world is anything but good or going in the right direction. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things are really messed up. So God decides to destroy humanity except for Noah and his family. And he's going to destroy the world and humanity through bringing a flood, a way to cleanse the earth from wickedness and sin, but keeps this one family. And so the flood comes, but Noah's family survives. Here again, we see the importance of the family line. We see the importance of the seed. Maybe a new beginning will come through Noah as God calls him right after the flood, calls him to do what he told Adam to do to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate the world and humanity and culture, to follow after God. Maybe he can be a new and better kind of Adam. No. Right after the flood subsides, Noah, in planting a vineyard, makes some wine and drinks too much. He gets drunk. And in the midst of that, one of his sons dishonors him and shames him. Things are not getting any better They seem to be the same at best, but also getting worse. But God is still at work. More time passes. We come to a man in chapter 12 named Abram. Genesis chapter 12, we come to this man named Abram, a man who isn't seeking after God, has no knowledge of him, isn't looking for him at all, but God comes for Abram. And he calls him to himself and he makes another promise. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Through Abram, a man who at this point in time currently has no children, God makes this promise that he will be a great nation. He will form a people through Abram and his family. And through his family line, all the nations will be blessed. Again, that sounds a lot like the promise of the seed of Eve. Not exactly the same, but similar. That one will come, will crush the head of the serpent. Here we see blessing will come to many through one family tree. 
then some time goes by, and Abram and his wife have no children. Instead of waiting in obedience to God's timing, they take things into their own hands in a sinful way. But God doesn't abandon them. He reiterates his promise to them. Even in the midst of their rebellion, he, he says, I'm going I'm to do this. I said I was going to do it, and I will do it. And to show that, he actually renames Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. It's another display of God's grace, of God's faithfulness. Eventually, Sarah gives birth to Isaac, and the family line continues. Isaac has sons, and one of his sons has many sons. Jacob has many sons, but they're all a mess too. So many things going on in their lives of not walking in obedience to the Lord. And what's going on? Well, God is still at work. But things are about to get a lot worse. God's people end up in Egypt out of need for food. But while they're there, at some point in time, a wicked king comes into power and enslaves God's people for 400 years. Our country hasn't even been around for that long. They're enslaved for 400 years. They're not experiencing freedom. They're not experiencing the promises of God coming to fruition in this moment. They're experiencing bondage. But God isn't done. God is faithful. And one day he sends Moses to redeem his people out of slavery. Moses takes on a new role in the midst of God's people. He becomes a mediator. He represents God to the people and the people to God. Maybe he'll be the one who steps on the head of the serpent in sin. But Moses himself is in need of redemption because he also fails and falls along the way. Now we have to fast forward a bit now to another important person in the storyline here, and that's to David, a man after God's own heart. God chooses David to be king over his people, not because David is strong and awesome and great, because God saw him and chose him to be in this role as a king And David has great success in leading and prospering God's people. Maybe, maybe he'll be the one. But David too sins in the grievous ways. But God again shows grace. Instead of turning his back on David, he makes another promise to him. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 13. God speaking to David says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you see the similarities to the other promises that God has made all the way back to Genesis 3? Through one offspring comes blessing. A king from David's family will sit on the throne forever, ruling over God's people. Things are unfolding now a bit more. And David indeed does have a son who will become king named Solomon. And he will be wise and he will be great and he will be mighty, but he is also so prone to the sin of Adam, of seeking the pleasure of this world instead of finding pleasure in God. Maybe it's one of Solomon's sons then who will be faithful But as we read through the history of God's people, some are good, but none of them last forever. And many of the kings that come fail again and again and again. Will the promises of God be fulfilled? Will the promise of Genesis 3.15 be fulfilled? Or was it just kind of wishful thinking? The prophets come along. 
God sends these messengers to his people. He sends them to exhort them to return to him in repentance and faith, to follow after God. But within their exhortations, the prophets give a reiteration of hope. God hasn't forgotten because God is faithful. A promised one will come and he will make all things new. Isaiah the prophet says that this one who will come will be the son of David who will bring light and life in the world. Another mediator, one who is called a suffering servant, who will take on all of our sin and shame and restore shalom again. The prophet Ezekiel says God himself will cleanse his people and give them a new heart. And they will be his people and he will be their God. The prophet Zechariah tells us a fountain will be opened for the house of David to cleanse them from their sin. And the prophet Micah tells us that one will come out of Bethlehem, one from the line of David and his son Judah, to be a king over his people who will shepherd them and who will be their peace. But then it goes silent. God's people continue to disobey him and God stops speaking. And another 400 years go by. Has God forgotten what he promised to do? Is God actually faithful? I mean, can you feel the tension of expectation and failure all along the way for God's people? They see the brokenness of the world they're experiencing. They long for redemption. They long for God to do something to show up in some way. But there's a weightiness of waiting, a heaviness of waiting. There's an unfolding promise, but it's not yet fulfilled. When will it happen? How will it happen? Will it happen at all? And isn't waiting on the Lord so hard? Yet again and again, God uses it in the lives of his people. It's a theme you can see running throughout the Bible. Abraham was given a promise, but then had to wait years and years to have a child. His son, Isaac, had to do the same thing. Joseph sat in a prison cell for nothing he did wrong and had to wait on the Lord. The people of God are called to wait. Was God up to something in all of this? Always. God is always at work for your good and mine, always at work for his glory. God isn't passive or aloof. He isn't distant or disconnected. He isn't unable, but he always is at work, but we don't always know what he's doing or what he's up to. So what's going on in this case? What's he showing God's people throughout history? What's he showing us? Something crucial. God alone is the redeemer. God alone is the redeemer. See, a common trait among all humans since sin entered the world is the sometimes subtle and sometimes overt belief that we can be the remedy to our own problems. That we can fix whatever's going on. If we just try hard enough, if we're just good enough, even to the point of being accepted by God. If I can work really hard, God will accept me. But the problem with that is that it's doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did when they rejected God and his authority. When we say that we can do it on our own, it's a declaration of independence instead of dependence, of being self-sufficient creatures instead of being who we actually are, which is dependent creatures, never meant to be self-sufficient. See, the promise was for the seed of Eve to crush the head of the serpent, 
And so the promised redeemer would be a man, would be a human being, but not merely a man. Because man and woman alone cannot solve their greatest predicament. That we are all dead in our sin and separated from God. The reality is we can't rescue ourselves. We need to be rescued. And you know what? Only God can do that. He alone can fulfill all these promises all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And so that's what God does. He himself comes to bring about restoration. He himself comes to bring about redemption that he promised because he's full of grace and because he's faithful. All along the way, throughout this story, God was working through the seed of Eve. Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, to David, to Solomon, and so on and so on, right up to the point when a young woman from Nazareth engaged to be married to a man who is a part of David's line becomes pregnant not by normal means of conception, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, Matthew writes, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, by Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We see this reality here that this Savior will come And it won't just be just a regular person. It'll be God with us. And you know what happens right before this in the book of Matthew? A genealogy. And it goes from Abraham and it goes all the way to Jesus. In Luke's gospel, he gives a genealogy as well. And it starts with Jesus and goes all the way back. Luke chapter 3, verse 38, to the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the promise made to Abraham, which is just a reiteration of the promise made to Adam and Eve, was to his offspring, not offsprings. Paul's making the point it's for one, and that one, he says, Galatians 3.16, is Christ. All of this is tying all of who Jesus is and what Jesus does all the way back to the promise of Genesis 3.15 and everything in between. There always was and is only one who can do this. And so Paul tells us, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Brothers and sisters, only one can be the redeemer, only one who can crush Satan and sin because redemption from sin and its effects is a miracle that only God can perform. 
Only God himself can bring us back to himself, and he does so through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And how did he do that? Well, in the fullness of time, he was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons, as daughters, reconciled and restored to a right relationship with God, which was broken back in Genesis 3. He took on flesh and blood. He remained fully God, yet also was fully human. That's mind-boggling for us to try and comprehend and try and understand, but it's important that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He did that so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus is the promised one who bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus is the obedient one, the better Adam who never sinned, never rebelled against God the Father, but followed him in perfect obedience to the point of submitting himself to go to a Roman cross, not reluctantly, but with joy to stand in our place and die for our sin and our shame. And you know what? In that moment, in that moment, Satan thought he'd won. He remembered what God told him. You will strike the heel. Struck. Nobody stepped on my head. He thinks he wins in this moment as Jesus is crucified and dies. But that strike of a heel was just that. It was merely a bruise. Instead, it turned out to be to his own demise. Because Jesus is the one who enabled our record of debt to be canceled as he was nailed to a cross. And Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, when he did that, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. Because in that moment, Jesus paid for all of our sin and he declared it is finished. And then three days later, he rose again from the grave, crushing Satan, sin, and death forever. See, this isn't just about the cross. Now, Jesus is the guarantor of a better promise because he not only died for us, but rose again for us. And because of that, he's able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. Jesus fulfills all the promises of God all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Jesus is not a mediator, he is the mediator. Jesus is not a king, he is the king who is now ruling and reigning. Jesus is our promised peace. And what this means is, is that the death and resurrection of Christ isn't just for your forgiveness of sin. It isn't just to destroy Satan and sin. It's to restore you to a right relationship with God. It's to restore peace with God. That means God's grace doesn't just cover or remove our sin, it exceeds it. We get not only what we don't deserve, but the opposite of what we do deserve. We deserve God's wrath, but God gives us himself. So do you know him? Like, do you actually really, truly know him? In the midst of all this, do you see what God's doing? We don't have a full picture of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, but it's the beginning of a divine promise of salvation. All the time, the story was moving towards a goal, moving towards a person, moving towards Jesus. And now we have a full picture. 
something that the Old Testament saints didn't have. We can see that all of the Bible points to Jesus. All of it points to him. It's not just a collection of nice stories to tell. All of it has a goal in mind, and it's working its way towards Christ. So what do we do with this now? Like, when you go into your day tomorrow or have a tough time on Thursday this week or just kind of feeling apathetic in life, what, what do we do with this? Is just just for the sake of theology or knowledge? Well, that's helpful only as much as it encourages us to focus back on who God is. So as you go into your week this week, I want to give us two things to remember in light of all this. First, God is still your faithful redeemer. See, throughout this story again and again, God shows that he's faithful. He's faithful to his character. He's faithful to his people, even when they're not faithful. He's faithful to his promises, all of them. But you know, sometimes we can doubt God's faithfulness. At least I know I can. Especially in times of waiting. It's it's hard to wait. No matter what. But particularly when we don't have the full picture of what's going on. And when I doubt God's faithfulness, I try to be the hero of my own story. I try to figure things out. I try to fix things on my own. One of the biggest indicators for that for me is when I find myself thinking a lot more than praying. When I'm trying to have conversations with people in my head before I've actually had them. How I'm going to beat them in the conversation. Make my argument win out. When I find my mind just running and racing in all kinds of different directions, but not towards God. Not asking for his help. In that moment, I'm trying to be in control, and I find myself spending way more time trying to be my own redeemer instead of trusting in the faithful one who actually is my redeemer. So I need to come back to God's word. I need to come back to see the storyline of the Bible, to see God's faithfulness throughout time that's on display, that's ultimately seen in the person and work of Jesus. I need to call on his name. I need to set my gaze on him, the risen one. I need to remember there is only one who can redeem me, and it isn't me. God alone is still my faithful redeemer, and he has been faithful, and he will continue to be faithful. There's one overcomer. There's one mediator. There's one who is victorious. There's one hero, and I can have faith in him. I can have faith in the faithfulness of God. He keeps his promises. You know what? Because waiting is hard, God doesn't just leave us to ourselves in that. He gives us the Holy Spirit. A a promise. Holy Spirit to help us to remember, to help us to know who God is. He gives us the Spirit to help us endure and persevere in hope. And so now I can trust in Him. You can trust in Him. And because of that, we can have peace no matter what lies before us. So I want to encourage you to do the same. Place your faith in him, whether that's for the first time today or for the thousandth time in your life, remembering God is still your faithful redeemer and the only one who can be. The second thing to remember as you go into your week this week is that the story isn't over. Jesus has come, but sin and its effects still remain. 
We all know that. We experience it on a daily basis. What that means is, is that a full and final restoration of shalom again, of perfect harmony and peace and wholeness is still in the future. But we can be tempted in the difficulty of life in this world to despair. To be like the people of God were sometimes, straying away from him in the midst of waiting on him. And when that happens, we can start to look for hope and joy in other people and other things instead of him. This is where we have to come back to the word again. Because in it, from beginning to end, God gives us a vision. And he ends this glorious book of his living and active word by giving us a a vision for a glorious future through the Apostle John. In Revelation, the book that finishes up the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, God tells us that he will be our God and we will be his people. And then when he comes again, that there'll be no more sin and no more suffering, no more sadness, no more tears, no more death, and he will make all things new. In Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, it says this, the Apostle John speaking, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, what's there? The tree of life. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Does our world need healing? No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And then in Revelation 22, 14, it says that those who've been cleansed from their sin by Jesus are permitted to eat of the tree of life. When Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, they were removed so they couldn't eat from the tree of life. But because of Christ, because he fulfills every promise of God, now and one day we will be able to partake of that tree. The story started in a garden and went terribly wrong. But the story ends in a new city where there'll be no sin and no serpent there. And we will get to now eat of the tree of life and we will be with God forever. And in that time, shalom will be fully and finally restored. Genesis 1 through 3 is where it all began for us, but in Christ, it's where it all begins again. Where it all begins again. So as we wait for Jesus to come again or call us home, let's wait with hope and with confidence in the faithfulness of God. All of his promises, all of them find their yes and amen in Jesus. The only one who could and can redeem and restore. Amen. We're going to come forward and take communion together now. So if you don't yet have the elements for that, you can find them in the table in the back or along the railing if you're up in the balcony. I'm grateful for this time, for this meal, because it gives us a physical reminder and spiritual refreshment of what Jesus accomplished for us. Sin destroyed the shalom of God. It destroyed the peace of God, but Jesus came to restore it. He came to restore it just as God had purposed and promised. His body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might be forgiven, we might be made whole, we might be reconciled to God. 
so we eat the bread, a picture of Jesus' body given for us. And we drink the cup, a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And we do this until he comes again. It's a meal of remembrance, but also of hope. Because as we eat, we're refreshed with the very presence of Christ. And as we eat, we look forward to when we will eat a glorious meal with him in the new city. Something we can be confident in because we know our God is faithful. Before we eat and drink, I just want to take a moment, to give you a moment, to take time just to commune with God, to to reflect, to respond, to repent from something maybe God's showing you or encouraging you with from the word today. And if you're not yet a Christian, we're so thankful that you're here. God's doing something in your life. You're not here by accident. God wants you to know who he is and he wants to know that you can be known by him fully and completely, accepted by him because of what Christ has done for you. So instead of you taking communion, we want you to take Jesus today to turn away from your sin and place your hope and your faith in him. So if you don't yet know him, just take time to pray, to ask God to show him yourself. Take this moment now to repent and place your faith in him. For the rest of us, let's just go to the Lord now and spend some time communing with him before we eat and drink. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So now let's take the bread, a picture of Jesus' body broken for you, and eat together to be refreshed by our Redeemer. And now let's take the cup a picture of Jesus' blood shed for you and drink together to be renewed by our restorer. Let's pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you for your faithfulness that the storyline of the Bible shows us your grace and your promises are fulfilled in and through Jesus just as you planned, just as you purposed. God, help us now to remember that you are still our faithful redeemer. Help us to remember that the story isn't over. God, help us as we wait to set our gaze on our redeemer until he comes again or calls us home. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.